Just a bunch of Libyan militants hanging out with big guns. Today, Tuesday, May 7th, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. Militants in Libya lay siege to two government ministries and then stick around to talk with a reporter. By the time I arrived, they were lounging around, drinking bottled water, smoking cigarettes, uh, having a snack, and, and were happy to chat. Also today, why Russian President Vladimir Putin kept Secretary of State John Kerry waiting for three hours today. He likes to get people off balance. He likes to be able to basically exploit their kind of vulnerabilities, their frustrations, and you know turn things around to, to his advantage. Plus, as Iran gears up for a presidential election, we recall the run-up to the last presidential vote there. There was so much electricity and there was so much hope in the air. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of Womenheart and celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org. And by PBS, presenting TED Talks Education. John Legend hosts Jeffrey Canada, Bill Gates, and America's leading thinkers and educators on TED's first television show. Airs tonight at 10, 9 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. This week, Congress holds new hearings on the attacks last September in Benghazi, Libya. Those attacks left U.S. Ambassador Chris Stevens and three other Americans dead. Today, President Obama's choice to replace Stevens spoke at her confirmation hearing. Deborah K. Jones made it clear that, as ambassador, the security of U.S. diplomats in Libya will be her top priority. Currently, the security situation in Libya continues to be a big challenge. Right now, gunmen are laying siege to two of the country's biggest government agencies, the Foreign Ministry and the Justice Ministry. New York Times correspondent David Kirkpatrick is in Libya. He says he's been talking with some of the gunmen who are demanding that several Gaddafi era ministers stepped down. It was a, a bunch of guys with AK-47s and truck-mounted artillery uh, surrounding two major ministries and basically shutting them down. What's distinctive about this protest is the protesters, although heavily armed, insisted they were there in peace, uh, that they were a nonviolent protest, but with uh, heavy artillery. And that's just sort of the way that, that, that politics here has, has evolved. Obviously, there's an implicit threat when you bring heavy weapons to the government ministries. So they came to the ministries in peace, but with guns, big guns. How close were you able to get to them? Were you able to speak with them? Absolutely. That's the wonderful thing about Libya right now. The uh, occupants of the ministries promptly fled without any struggle. The government made no e effort to deter these people from setting up their siege. And so by the time I arrived, they were lounging around, drinking bottled water, smoking cigarettes, uh, having a snack, uh, and were happy to chat. Uh, and it continued that way in peace for about a week. We're entering a more critical and dangerous stage right now. Uh, the parliament complied with their immediate demand, which was for a new law barring former Qaddafi officials from government. But uh, even though that demand has been satisfied, the, the guys with guns outside the ministries haven't left yet. Uh, they're insisting that not only uh, the parliament uh, give in to their wishes and succumb to the threats of, of force, also the prime minister should resign. Uh, they're holding out for that right now, and so far the prime minister hasn't. And we're waiting to see, will the prime minister somehow muster some force of his own to get these people to go away? Will he negotiate with them and persuade them that there's some sort of compromise? Or will he give in, in which case 
uh, I mean, I'm already calling this militia rule, but then you've really got militia rule. Are there any channels for these disaffected groups to participate in government right now? Yeah, there certainly are. I mean, there was the, the election that was held last July was basically free and fair. Anybody could compete, and there's a relative balance of power in the transitional legislature. The, the non-Islamists don't have a truly dominant share, uh, and the Islamists don't have a dominant share. So you'd think that there was a rough equilibrium there, and all regions of the country are represented. If that body could actually do its work, if it could function and form coalitions and have debates and do the things you normally expect of a mature legislature, then you could see a civilian government. But right now, every time it tries to take a tough decision, it feels threatened by some armed group someplace. Uh, and you get into this cycle where the, the government uh, is cowering in front of the armed groups, and the more it cowers, the more powerful they are. The more powerful they are, the more it cowers. It's hard to see how the government is going to get out of this. It's been almost two years since the fall of Muammar Gaddafi. Uh, you were in Tripoli uh, yesterday. You're in Benghazi today, which has its own violent recent history with the death of Ambassador Chris Stevens there last year. Uh, what does it feel like to be in Libya right now? It feels very uncertain and a little bit depressing, to be honest. I think there's quite a bit of disappointment. People had higher hopes for their revolution, uh, you know, as in so many of these Arab Spring countries. It was a cliche after the old governments fell to say, well, now comes the hard part. But here we are, and it is really very hard, you know, especially in Libya's case, most of all in Libya's case, where there really was no national government, not much sense of national unity, not much history as a nation, no national institutions, no political parties, no ideologies. They're really starting from scratch. You know, you sort of have to roll back and imagine the very first people building government for the first time. That's about what it feels like here in Libya right now. New York Times correspondent David Kirkpatrick speaking with us from Benghazi in Libya. Thanks very much, David. It's a pleasure. Two security concerns of another sort in China now. The Pentagon released a report yesterday that for the first time openly blames China's military for cyber attacks against U.S. government computer systems. The report also detailed the recent growth and modernization of China's military, including the development of China's first stealth aircraft and its first aircraft carrier. This all comes in the wake of some aggressive moves by the Chinese military in disputed regions around Asia. The world's Mary Kay Magstad in Beijing has been monitoring Chinese reaction to the Pentagon report. There was a very interesting report from the state-run news agency Xinhua. Uh, It basically said that these were groundless accusations, a groundless report. But then there was this line, which I haven't heard put quite this way in all my time in China, which was, and I'm quoting here, as a global economic power, China has a tremendous number of economic sea lanes to protect. China is justified to develop its military capabilities to safeguard its sovereignty and protect its vast interests around the world. Now, this is in sharp contrast to China having said for many, many years that it is not hegemonic, that its military is there purely for defensive purposes. It did still say this in this news article, but the two lines were smack up against each other. China's military is a staunch force to uphold world peace and regional stability. And then, but we have all these interests around the world and we intend to protect them. That almost sounds like imperialism, light. Well, they could say it sounds like the United States. There seems to be big concern in the U.S. about China's first aircraft carrier uh, in this report. Any other hardware that China has that also poses some concerns for the U.S.? Quite a lot. The report mentioned three already operational nuclear-powered ballistic missile submarines. 
It mentioned an anti-ship ballistic missile that can take out aircraft carriers. And it mentioned just a general upgrading of the Chinese Navy to the extent that it could actually be operational about a thousand nautical miles off of China's coast in what's called blue water or deep water, the high seas. So when China's saying that it wants to protect its sea lanes, these are also sea lanes that the U.S. is concerned about and where the U.S. Pacific fleet operates now. Mm. Now, in this report, the U.S. seems to focus on cyber spying and the Chinese modernized military. And this is just as China's military is kind of on guard. On Sunday, three Chinese government ships entered the disputed zone off the Japanese-controlled Senkaku Islands. And then yesterday came a tentative end to a tense three-week standoff between China and India over disputed territory there. What is all that about? And is China feeling like it's on the ropes right now with these territories? It appears to be some testing and probing by the new Chinese government. Xi Jinping became president in March. He became head of the party in November. And his approach has been to use a more robust, more aggressive approach to the military as a way of consolidating his power. What's not known is, is this mostly just a way to consolidate his power, but he doesn't really intend to act? Or is this a moment in China where the economy is slowing down? There are a lot of problems that aren't going to be resolved quickly. And like many countries in history have done, maybe a little war somewhere to rally national support wouldn't be a bad thing at this point. The world's Mary Kay Magsad in Beijing. Thank you. Thank you. Iran today kicked off its election season. Candidates for president will have five days to submit applications to run for office. The vote is scheduled next month in June. Last time around in 2009, 475 hopefuls registered as candidates. Only four were approved to run by what's called the Guardian Council, a group of 12 men mostly appointed by Iran's supreme leader. To put it mildly, the Iranian system is not the democracy we're used to. Journalist Shireen Jafari is here to help explain. It's a sort of a um, very closed system. The criteria that they look for, and it's also in the constitution, is they have to be trustworthy, they have to be members of the political elite in Iran, they have to be Iranian, and they have to adhere to the Shia um, Islam, and they have to have clean record. And these are sort of more or less vague um, criteria that they have to look for um, at the council. As for the process itself, I mean, we have this system whereby if you want to run for office in this country, typically you've got to get a lot of signatures on a petition. Uh, in Iran, is the process as simple as just signing up on a form somewhere? Do you have to gather signatures? No, this is, it's actually really simple. You just have to show up at the office of the Interior Ministry and have a valid birth certificate. And then you can sign up and be considered for the presidency. That's all it takes. Could a woman run if she wanted to for president of Iran? Um, I don't think so, because um, in the words of the Constitution, it says that um, this this has to be somebody from the political elite, and they use he. Let me ask you about a couple of people, uh, men. Uh, former presidents Ali Akbar, Rafsanjani, and Mohammad Khatami are, are known quantities, both for Iranians and for uh, the United States, it has to be said. Uh, is it a given that these two will run or be allowed to run? 
Well, there's, there's been a lot of talk about them running. Um, a lot of people, supporters of Khatami, has been asking him to run. They've written letters asking him to run. And also Rafsanjani, they've been asking him to run too. Rafsanjani is somebody who's known for his um, skills at turning uh, um, the economy around. And people are hoping um, he would join the race this time and change what's going on you know, in the economy. You know, this is something that is really important for the people in Iran right now, the economy. There's a 30% inflation. People have difficulty living their lives right now. You hear from everyday folks saying they have trouble, you know, just going on their daily lives and buying bread or, you know, paying for their food. And this president is going to be really important for them. Now, in the background to all of this is the 2009 election, uh, the, the Green Revolution, uh, the re-election of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. How high really were those hopes in 2009, before the demonstrations, uh, before the deaths, that that would be a, a real kind of watershed election? And did 2009 dash even more hopes for this election? I think the hopes were really high. There was so much um, electricity and there was so much hope in the air. And what happened after was totally the opposite. Um, you know, people saw, you know, all their hopes were dashed uh, and, um, you know, they, they, their votes just disappeared. Um, that's not, you know, the total population, but um, most, you know, generally what we saw after was people asking for their votes to be counted. And this time, I guess, maybe those people would be Again, saying, you know, why should we vote? What is the what is the purpose of us voting if it, this is not going to have any effect on our democracy? How do you see this election uh, next month in Iran having a, an effect on the U.S. and U.S. policy? So the person, whoever ends up in the office in Iran, it's going to be really important for the country. He's going to be talking to the U.S. to ease up the sanctions or, um, you know, deal with the nuclear issue as well. Journalist Shireen Jafari will be checking in with you in the next few weeks as uh, we continue to raise the curtain on next month's presidential election in your home of Iran. Thanks so much. Thank you. Still to come on the program, what happened to one woman in London who was watching The Watchers? This is The World on Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of Women Heart and celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Spain's unemployment rate jumped to a record high last month to 27.2 percent. It's more than twice that for young people. The Spanish government is trying to find ways to get young people back to work. One is by promoting startup companies or entrepreneurship. But there are hurdles, red tape, high taxes, even cultural resistance. The world's Jerry Haddon reports from Barcelona. Francesc Sanz has one of those coffee mugs on his desk with a slogan on it. It says, stay calm and write the future. When you are in a startup, everyone is, is running, so we run, but try to keep calm <laughs> sometimes. As for the future, for Sants, it's in the Spanish rental market. Sants is a baby-faced 33-year-old with unkempt hair. He owns and runs a startup for renting apartments online, cutting out the old-fashioned agency middleman. It's called LaCommunity.com. Getting La Community off the ground hasn't been easy. For example, I took a credit from the bank, a really high uh, interest, and 
So I, I'm still paying for that. <laughs> a big part of that loan didn't go into growing the business, but to covering taxes. As an independent worker, Sants has to pay a $400 a month health care tax, and each of his four employees costs him another 45% above and beyond their salaries. Hardly a way to encourage entrepreneurship, he says. This is one of the most important points for entrepreneurs, you know, cutting the cost of all the tax that you pay for, for higher people. Would you hire more people? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Getting more young people hired is at the heart of a new government stimulus plan designed to reverse Spain's chronic recession. Spain's vice president, Soraya Science de Santa Maria, recently outlined a battery of initiatives to make starting a startup easier. They include millions in funding, tax breaks, and other measures. Albert Fernández, a professor at Barcelona's ESA Business School, says they all sound great. And last year, they sounded great, too. The problem is that all these measures are taking longer time than expected in being implemented. Because as the Spanish economy shrinks, the harder it is for the government to spend money to spur growth. But Fernanda says it's a little too easy just to blame the government for Spain's lack of entrepreneurs. There are two problems in Spain, probably more than other countries. One is English. People do not speak English as much as in other countries. And the second is cultural. For example, I have been in Israel several times, and in Israel, people are thinking in creating a company as a one possibility just after they finish the university. The same holds true in Germany, at least in big cities like Berlin. Unlike Spain, where university graduates aspire to work in big firms, Germans have more of a culture of entrepreneurship. Take Ingo Schumann and Greta Gessenberg. When they finished school, they launched a high-tech startup together and failed. Schumann says in Germany, that's okay. You know, start one and you make a lot of errors or mistakes and something like this, and then you start it again and start it again. So it's okay to make mistakes now. No doubt Germany would love to see Spaniards embrace such spirit. Germany has already spent tens of billions of euros rescuing its southern European neighbors from bankruptcy. One positive sign out of Madrid, the government says the number of independent businesses with at least one employee, that is, startups, roughly speaking, jumped 6% last year. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon in Barcelona. Spain may want to look to Chile for some entrepreneurship inspiration. In the story we're about to share, Free Enterprise lives in a box of laundry detergent. Now, buying a box of laundry detergent may not sound luxurious to you and me, but for some in Chile, it is. That inspired one young man to come up with a solution to ease the burden. It involves a homemade vending machine, as Katie Manning reports from a neighborhood in Santiago. In Huachuraba, many are so strapped for cash that they buy detergent in small packets. Ultimately, it costs more that way. Veronica Weiss, who lives here with her husband and three teenagers, says it's a constant struggle. Sometimes we just can't afford the prices. Why can't we go back to the old times? For example, before, you didn't have to buy a whole stick of butter. If you couldn't afford the whole thing, you could buy half of it for half the price. Jose Moler took that question seriously. He's a student protester turned social entrepreneur. Moller decided to build a simple vending machine that sells small amounts of laundry detergent at a 40% discount. 
He explains how they're able to cut costs. Que nosotros no hacemos plan de marketing dado que el almacenero es quien promociona nuestros productos. First of all, there's no marketing because the shopkeeper promotes our product. Secondly, we buy in bulk. Thirdly, our suppliers deliver the product right to the machine. The fourth is the reusable container since we don't use packaging. To demonstrate how it works, Moler plugs in the wooden vending machine. He drops in three coins worth about 25 cents each. And the machine pours out 200 grams of detergent into a reusable container. That's enough for four loads. Se podría decir que en una familia promedio el impacto no es tan grande. You could say that this doesn't have such a big impact on a middle-class family, but for the poorest families in the country, the ones we're trying to help, it has a significant impact. The vending machine is set up outside a local mini market. The owner is Patricia Segredo, and she gets a cut of the sales. In fact, the machine has doubled her profit margin on detergent, but she says it's also helping out the neighborhood. It reminds me of when I was suffering, when I couldn't afford basic things. Now, thank God, I have my store here, but because of my experience, I feel for the family that really are in need. Miller says that not every product lends itself to vending machine sales. You see, you need a steep gap between the shelf and the factory price. Otherwise, you can't sell for much less than the name brand. We're now starting to use rice. After that, it is to go to products like lentils and sugar. At the end of the year or into next year, we'll make machines for liquids like oil and liquid soap. Miller is expanding the idea with the help of a $60,000 grant. He plans to put 100 machines in Huatraba's mini markets by November, and he's considering taking the idea abroad. For now, the machine in Huatraba is getting a lot of action. Veronica Weiss says it's sold out in a week. It lets you save a few pesos for the bus or to buy a few things. Saving about 15 cents a load may not pull bias out of poverty, but it could help a neighborhood where every peso counts. For the world. This is Katie Manning in Santiago, Chile. It's a simple machine, and we've got a simple video to show you how it works. It's all at theworld.org. Now, our GeoQuiz today presents an ethical dilemma. Imagine this. You hear tires screeching. Then a car driven by robbers races by, the police in hot pursuit. Suddenly, you see the robbers toss a safe out the window as they speed away. The safe cracks open, and the cash literally starts raining down on the street. About a million euros, in fact. People start grabbing as much cash as they can before the police can secure the scene. All of this really happened two weeks ago in a town called Zedelhem. It's in a region called Flanders, not too far from the North Sea. So here's what we want from you. First, which European country are we talking about? And second, Can you guess how much money that's spilled onto the street has been recovered so far? The answers are coming up later in the program. This is The World on Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. What's it like when you're the target of a police stop and search in London? They tell you, you know, we're searching you for drugs and, and we're going to go through your pockets and we're going to pat you down. And they have blue gloves and they pat you down. It's like, it is quite humiliating. We'll hear what happened to this man's friend when she tried to film it all. 
That's ahead on The World. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of Women Heart and celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org. And by PBS, presenting Constitution USA with Peter Sagal, a look at how our Constitution keeps pace with modern America. Starts tonight at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's not like it's a repeat of the Cold War, but the atmosphere between Russia and the U.S. lately has been chilly. Today, an effort to warm things up. Secretary of State John Kerry met with Russian President Vladimir Putin. They're trying to smooth out the wrinkles in relations between Washington and Moscow. Fiona Hill is director of the Center on the United States and Europe and a senior fellow in the foreign policy program at the Brookings Institution. So the big wrinkle that needs ironing out is uh, the U.S. trying to get Russia to increase pressure on the regime in Syria, Fiona. So explain the calculus for us. What does Kerry want from Russia on Syria and what should he realistically expect? Well, obviously, Secretary Kerry is very much hoping that Putin will find a way to use his relationship with Bashar Assad to negotiate with the opposition, at least to find some way out of uh, the current impasse. On a realistic front, though, uh, the best that we could possibly hope for is uh, to try to persuade the Russians not to block any action that the US and others might take. You know both Putin and Kerry pretty well. So tell us, what do you think was said behind the scenes about Syria that we're not hearing? Well, uh, Kerry is the consummate uh, diplomat. He's somebody who really prides himself on his reliability and being a man of uh, his word. I'm sure he was uh, trying to persuade uh, Putin, who is a great uh, skeptic of the United States, that he had a a plan for Syria and that uh, if he undertook to do something, that he would uh, carry this out. Putin um, is is a skeptic of the United States because he's extremely disappointed with any uh, U.S. official from the present on down's ability to deliver on any undertakings that they've made. So it'll be a very difficult job for Secretary Kerry to persuade Putin that this is going to be different. What, What is the background to the Chile relations right now between Russia and the U.S.? Well, the relationship between Russia and the U.S. is notorious uh, for looking like a roller coaster. We've had peaks of expectations of partnership all the way over the last uh, 20 years and then the troughs that we're in now. But what we always find is it becomes hostage to domestic politics. The United States is a very convenient domestic tool uh, to mobilize against, you know, blaming the United States for all kinds of abominations domestically and internationally uh, to try to shore up his base of, base of support. You know, following the Boston Marathon bombings a few weeks ago, it looked as if U.S. and Russian intelligence agencies were about to start pointing the finger at each other for intelligence failures. How how do you think the marathon bombings affected relations between the U.S. and Russia? Well, they've obviously made a very strong case, uh, at least on the surface, for President Putin's claim right from the outset that uh, Chechnya was part of the broader uh, war on terrorism. It's part of this arc of terrorism that uh, we've been preoccupied with in so many different uh, arenas. It does open up the prospect of the US and Russia working together on the upcoming Sochi Winter Olympics in uh, the beginning of uh, 2014. Fiona, let me just circle back to the meeting between uh, Putin and Kerry today. You've just co-authored a book about Vladimir Putin uh, called Mr. Putin, Operative in the Kremlin. And and I noticed that Putin today kept Secretary Kerry waiting for three hours before their meeting. 
Can you take us inside Putin's mind? How do you think he sees this moment to engage with the U.S.? Well, this has become standard operating procedure for Putin. It really, you know, throws everyone off balance and, you know, puts him in the driver's seat when he eventually shows up. Secretary Kerry was actually quite lucky. It could have been much worse. He's kept, you know, regional presidents waiting for five, six, you know, even seven hours, uh, executives of oil companies, international oil companies, you name it. Mm. This is something that underscores the fact that he is most definitively in charge. He likes to get people off balance. He likes to be able to exploit their kind of vulnerabilities, their frustrations and, you know, turn things around to to his advantage. Fiona Hill at the Brookings Institution in Washington. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Marco. Kerry, by the way, thanked Putin today for Russia's help in the Boston bombings investigation. Being in Boston, the world is following the issue of compensation for victims of the bombings. The One Fund Boston was set up to collect donations for the victims and their families. And the fund's administrator had been meeting, has been meeting with them to decide how much they'll receive. Philanthropy is one way, a very American way of helping out. The world's Andrea Crossan looks at victim compensation across the globe. How do you put a dollar figure on the loss of a child or the loss of a limb? That's now Kenneth Feinberg's job. He's the administrator of the One Fund Boston, the charity set up for victims of the Boston bombings. Feinberg has been called the master of disaster. He handled the victims' compensation fund for the 9-11 terrorist attacks. He also administered funds for the Aurora, Colorado theater shootings and the BP oil spill. Feinberg spoke at a town hall meeting last night in Boston's main public library. He said it's not easy to decide victim compensation. Double amputations, single amputations, burns, permanent brain damage, hospitalization this long, hospitalization that long. Solomon himself would have problems with this. Right now, the One Fund Boston contains about $28 million, and it's likely to rise. The money comes from public and corporate donations. That's a little different than what you'd see in other parts of the world. Many countries view victim compensation as the responsibility of the government. Take, for example, the London subway and bus bombings on July 7, 2005. Over 700 people were injured, 52 were killed, including Julie Nicholson's daughter, Jennifer. My daughter at the time was 24 years old. She was killed in the Edgware Road bombing in the terrorist attack on the London transport system. It was shocking and traumatising beyond belief. One moment we were living quite a, a normal, everyday, normal existence and within hours we were plunged into the most horrific experience. Julie Nicholson's family received a payment from Britain's Criminal Injuries Compensation Authority. The government awards ranged from about 1500 to three-quarters of a million dollars. Nicholson says it can be a slow process. There were layers and layers because those who were killed and those who were badly injured in the terrorist attack were caught up not only in the death of a loved one, in a whole bureaucratic system. Sometimes families wait years for government compensation. In 2002, a Chechen separatist group took a theater full of people hostage in Moscow. Russian security forces pumped in a gas to subdue the militants. 130 hostages died from the gas. Over 700 people were injured. 
Initially, the Russian government agreed to pay just fifteen hundred dollars in compensation to each surviving hostage, and a little over three thousand dollars to relatives of those killed. Svetlana Gubareva was in the theater with her fiance and her thirteen-year-old daughter. She was the only one to survive. Gubareva told the BBC she blames the loss of her family on President Vladimir Putin, not the hostage takers. Uh, they are less guilty to me than the Russian authorities. They didn't pump the gas in. Gubareva and other survivors waged a ten-year battle with the government for more compensation. Last December, the European Court of Human Rights ordered Russia to pay 64 plaintiffs, a total of 1.7 million dollars. Here in Boston, victim compensation will be swifter. The one fund says it will start cutting checks as soon as next month. It's up to Kenneth Feinberg to decide how much each victim will get. It ultimately depends on the size of the fund. The bigger the public outpouring, the bigger the payment. But there is another way that victims can ask for help: crowdfunding. Ethan Austin is co-founder of Give Forward. His website helps people to raise money to pay their medical bills. People want to help people, and this is just an easier way to facilitate what people naturally want to do. Some Boston bombing victims have set up web pages to solicit donations. Give Forward keeps a percentage of the final amount. Austin says it's especially helpful in the U.S., where insurance may not cover all the medical bills. No matter where the money is coming from, it's uncomfortable to put a price on trauma. Understandably, Julie Nicholson doesn't like to discuss the amount her family received for the loss of her daughter Jennifer, but that money does ease the burden for survivors and grieving families. Everyone can be sympathetic, but often it's the practical, really practical help you need. It's hard enough asking for information when people then have to be in a position of asking for financial help so they can pay for a funeral or medical treatment. I think that's.、Um, That, that's dreadful. For the world, I'm Andrea Crossan in Boston. The Boston bombing case was ultimately solved by cameras that picked up images of the suspects. That's probably going to happen a lot more now that we have cameras on the streets and in our pockets. But what about when we turn those cameras on members of law enforcement? Here's such a tale from London. Fred Grace and Gemma Atkinson are filmmakers in the city. They're also a couple. So one afternoon in 2009, they took the subway, the tube. Home after a meeting, but as they made their way out of the station, they were stopped by police. Here's Fred. You come up the stairs and you have the barriers for your tickets. As we came through there, a sniffer dog was right on top of me, because sometimes in London they do random.、Uh, they're called stop and searches, so they'll have a load of police to look for people with drugs, and they have sniffer dogs. And then if the sniffer dog goes for you, then they'll do a search. Right. So the dog will come up to you, and it did for me as I came out the barrier. And a policeman comes straight up to you and goes, "Excuse me, sir, can you come over with me?" And you go over with two officers, and they take you sort of to the side of the station, but actually, it's where the main concourse bit is, so where all the people are flooding out of. They tell you, you know, we're searching you for drugs, and and we're going to go through your pockets, and we're going to pat you down. And they have blue gloves, and they pat you down. It's like it is quite humiliating because you're right in the middle of the station, and everyone's walking past, going, "That guy's obviously got drugs on him." Did you? No, I didn't. No. So while this is all going on,、uh, the whole thing is being filmed by your partner and colleague, Gemma Atkinson. What prompted you to get out your camera, or was it your、uh, mobile phone? It was my mobile phone,、um, simply because I'd seen it all happen, and in fact, I saw the woman with the sniffer dog point Fred out before we came through the barriers. 
And I waited patiently as he was taken to the Congos and started to be searched. And I stood close by, waiting for the search to finish. And it didn't. It went on and on. So I stood back slightly and got my phone out to start filming. I just think it's important to film our police as they go about their business if you think possibly their activities aren't quite right. So I was filming in the concourse. I went to film the woman, the sniffer dog, and I filmed some other random young guy who was also being searched as I walked back along to to continue filming Fred. And that's when an officer came up to me and said, do you realise it's an offence to film police officers under the Terrorism Act? What the police officers told Gemma wasn't entirely true. The Terrorism Act is a British law that came into effect in the year 2000. There's a key passage, Section 58A, that says in part that you're breaking the law if you film police and that the film is, quote, likely to be useful to a person committing or preparing an act of terrorism, end quote. The law was vaguely worded, but still, it didn't seem to apply to Gemma Atkinson. She was using her phone to film police performing a so-called stop-and-search of her boyfriend. Gemma says she put the phone away in her right pocket, but the police officers tried to wrestle it away from her. She slumped down to the ground, bringing her knees to her chest to block them. And it went on like that for a while. For half an hour it went on. They got different officers involved, but I kept telling them that what they were doing was wrong and it was unlawful. So for 30 minutes you're kind of in their grip and trying to keep them from getting into your right pocket? Yeah, so I stopped them getting into my pocket just by... I mean, they they could have easily launched in and got it, but they were trying to reason with me and I was trying to reason with them and then we would stand for a while and then they'd suddenly launch at me again, so I'd slump down and then they'd tug me back up. Um, At one point they put handcuffs on me. It was really, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to get across quite how horrible a situation it is because you're completely powerless. In the end, the police didn't arrest Gemma Atkinson or her partner, Fred Grace. They let both of them go. But what had happened to Gemma? The two filmmakers couldn't let that go. They talked to a lawyer and threatened to challenge the Terrorism Act in court. It didn't get that far, but London's police force did issue new guidance to its officers. It was essentially just to tell the police to understand the law better, that you really couldn't just arrest someone for filming you, that you really had to have suspicion that it was a terrorist, that this person was actually going to use this footage to aid a terrorist act. Gemma Atkinson also reached a separate settlement with the police to compensate her for the treatment she'd received that day in the London subway station. She and Fred have used the money to make an animated film about their experience. One part of the film shows how Gemma's perception of law and order in Britain has changed over the years, from the friendly neighborhood cops of her childhood to intimations of an Orwellian police state today. I think we are getting to a kind of 1984 state. We're supposed to be fighting terrorists to keep our freedoms, and yet our own governments are taking our freedoms away. But in this animated film you've produced, uh, even you point out that the world is different now after 9-11, after the London bombings. I mean, there's a recent poll in the U.S. that shows more people are comfortable giving up some civil liberties and accepting high levels of surveillance to feel more secure. Uh, Do you think there's nothing we must accept in this new reality, or do you not accept the premise that the world has changed? I accept the world has changed and there are threats, but there have always been threats. We have constantly had threats of terrorism. I mean, going back centuries, London's been, been bombed. It's, it's, you're always going to have, uh, have threats, but I think if you start to lose individual parts of your liberty, just little by little, when they're taken away from you, that's actually going to help us? I don't, I don't think it is. I don't think that's going to help police to, to, to fight terrorism. The police are here to protect us. They're not here to abuse us or cause us fear, which some of them do. 
if they've got nothing to hide, then uh, why are they right. afraid of being filmed? That's what everyone always says to us about CCTV. You have nothing to hide. Here in the U.S., people have been arrested for videotaping the police. But in most states, the law allows citizens to film police in public as long as they don't disrupt their work. And civil liberty groups argue the First Amendment protects the right to film or photograph police. But local laws across the country vary. And questions of consent, privacy, and civil disobedience leave a lot open to interpretation, both for police and the courts. You're listening to The World from Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. What would you do if a lot of cash suddenly rained down on your street? Collect it and stick it in your pocket? Go out and paint the town red, perhaps? Or maybe turn it in to the authorities like you're supposed to? This is the real-life dilemma facing the people of Zedelhem in Belgium. So Belgium is the answer to one of the questions we asked you in today's GeoQuiz. The loads of cash spilled from a safe that robbers threw out of a speeding car as they were being chased by police through a street in Zedelhem. As the euro notes rained down, people in the street started picking up as many bills as they could. Which brings us to the other question we asked you. Out of the nearly one million euros in that safe, how much do you think has been recovered so far? Well, Zedelhem Mayor Patrick Arnoux has that answer. For the moment, we have half of the money which is back. The police officers at the moment could find about 450,000 euros, which was still in the safe, of lying in the neighborhood of the, cha- of the safe. And then they could also take some money from people which were still there. And now, uh, since then, we have recovered about 62,000 euros. So that makes uh, a big half of the money is back, but there are still some 450,000 euros missing. Police are appealing to residents to hand back any of the remaining money they grabbed off the street. And they've warned people that keeping the cash is a crime that carries a possible two-year jail sentence. Mayor Arnoux thinks his fellow townspeople will do the right thing. They just need a little nudge. It's a criminal offense to keep the money. So I was a little bit afraid that people who had uh, taken money wouldn't dare to, to do it back to the police because when you wait some days, police will be saying you haven't brought it back uh, immediately. So I wouldn't like that people don't bring it back because they are afraid to do so. And so I have said you can bring it back anonymously to me and then I will forward it to the police. The mayor even offered to set up a way for the money to be handed back anonymously through a mailbox next to Zedelhem City Hall. Some took him up on that offer, but don't you know, others then tried to steal the mailbox. Arnoux says the whole affair split the town into two camps. It's a big issue, and people are totally confronted uh, between them on on that issue. Uh, One say you have to bring it back, it's not your money, other people have worked for it. But other ones say no, when you have one million euro, you're very rich, so you can take money. The mayor himself suspects that the people who aren't talking about the case much may be the ones who still have some of the money. And he thinks it will be a while before the residents of Zedelhem stop entertaining such thoughts. When you were buying a car or so in the next month and you are living in that street, everyone will look at you and say it's from the money that you have collected from, from the robbery. We'll try to keep an eye on the story out of Belgium. But in the meantime, we're still curious, what would you do? Keep the cash or turn it in? Geo-texting game players weighed in by the score earlier today on this ethical conundrum. Sarah from Rockville, Maryland, says she wouldn't touch that money. It's involved in a crime. On the other hand, Joe from East Haddonfield, New Jersey, says he'd quickly grab a rake. 
I'm assuming he wouldn't be planning to give back as much as possible once he's raked together his pile. Mike from Pasadena says he'd fix the U.S. deficit and then retire to Sri Lanka. So Mike's thinking of the wider good and himself. Susan from Denton, Texas says, gather and return it. What goes around comes around. That's the pay it forward approach. And then there's the citizen public safety approach from Kelly in Santa Barbara, California. She says, try to record a description of the getaway car. Stay out of the roadway to avoid police activity. Right on. We'd still like to hear your take on this moral dilemma. And you can tell us at theworld.org. And finally today, we close the program with an album chosen for us by Manasa Puri of Joy FM in Lusaka, Zambia. I want to share with you today the music of uh, Eric Bibb, an American-born acoustic blues singer who now lives in Europe, who is joined together with Habib Kwate, a Malian acoustic guitarist, and together they have an album called Brothers in Bamako. And the first track I'd like you to hear is On My Way to Bamako. Well, I'm on my way to Bamako, a place I always wanted to go. On my way to Bamako to see what I can see. Got a good friend there, Habib Kwate, a great musician, by the way. Got a good friend there, Habib Kwate, gonna meet his family. Eric Bibb and Habib Kwate, brothers in Bamako, and the song On My Way to Bamako. Habib Kwate is a Senegalese-born Malian-based guitarist, uh, one of Africa's most exciting performers. And he tunes his guitar as one would tune the Malian traditional instrument, the kamele ngoni. Here is Habib Kwate with Eric Bibb on Tomboktu. Tomboktu. I've been to Memphis and Baton Rouge, Rio de Janeiro and Veracruz, Nairobi, Paris, Honolulu, but I've never seen a city like known to you probably as Timbuktu and as uh, Ali Fakature said once people say Timbuktu is the end of the world but as far as we are concerned those of us who live in Timbuktu it is the center of our universe Habib Kwata and uh, Eric Bibb have been touring in the United States at the beginning of March 2013 and are touring to promote this uh, album Brothers in Bamako in Europe throughout May and uh, April to June Here's the final tune from Brothers in Bamako. Eric Bibb and Habib Kwaite doing Tumani Kellen and the African-American spiritual Needed Time. I'm Manasa Piri in Zambia, and I'll see you again soon. Tumani Kele, amago bodela Koko dauma, angase kakoninke Tumani kele amago bodela Koko dama Kobena tumali You can hear the full version of this track by Eric Bibb and Habib Kwate at theworld.org 
And while you're there, be sure to check out Manasseh Piri's other exceptional DJ picks from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston. I'm Marco Werman. We're back tomorrow. Now is the needed time. Now is the needed time. We're living in the needed time.